I am thrilled at today's guest. Uh, Jennifer Gray is a icon. We're going to talk a lot to her, obviously, uh, about her her new, not new book, but relatively new book, Out of the Corner a Memoir, one of the great titles of all time. She's She is a uh, Golden Globe-nominated actress, of course, for her roles in, in things, but most particularly for Dirty Dancing, also Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and a lot of other stuff. Um, the memoir is, is one of the really... Uh, most honest, real, raw, uh, tear-inducing, laugh-invoking. Uh, it's just really good. Congratulations, kid. New York Times bestseller. Thanks, kid. I really appreciate it. <laughs> so tell me, how are you? What's going on? I'm wonderful. I feel so good, just in general. And I feel grateful and I don't know. I don't want to sound too boring, but I'm really happy. <laughs> not, everybody, not everybody says that. Why? Why are we so happy? Don't don't fuck don't fuck everybody else up. All right. I mean, well, I'm not doing I'm it in a competitive way. Like ah, nana, nana, foo, foo. I'm happy. Right. You're not. Sorry. No, it's not like that. I just feel. I I feel very um, excited to be alive. I don't know. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Now, are you? Have you started work? I know they've announced that there's a twenty in twenty twenty four Dirty Dancing uh, sequel. Have you started production on that yet? Um, no, it's going to start in the spring. All right, that's got to be exciting. That, that's got that's going to be fun. That's got to be so much fun. It's got to be fun. That's the whole point. If it's not fun, why are we doing it? Right. That's it. All right, let's get right to the book. You start. You you start with a prologue. Interestingly enough, about one of the most consequential kind of life altering things. You're you're. Plastic surgeries, your nose jobs, your two of them, and how it just obviously been so well documented. How your look, this unique look that brought you to stardom, and then you've made these changes. And why did you decide to start with the book with that? You know, I have to say that I hired a freelance editor named Barbara Jones, who was very. Um, she's one of those people that was. She's like the senior editor at Holt Publishing for fifteen years or something, and she took a break from that. And was just kind of, you know, had a little moment in her life. And so I grabbed her and she was one of the most incredible gifts of this book for me because I'd never written a book before. I didn't go, if you read the book, you'll know I didn't pay much attention in high school and college didn't happen. And so I really didn't know that I could do it. And I eventually did write every single word of it, which I'm so proud of. And I really believe the reason that I, it came out so well is because of Barbara. And one of Barbara's things, one of her incredible uh, additions, one of Barbara's most important, impactful contributions to my book is that it was her idea to put that as the prologue. Yeah. And I really was, I think it made, it was such a strong choice. And that was all her. The rest of the book is me and her fixing my sentences that were not sentences, you know. Right. But basically, um, the idea of starting with the thing to get it out of the way and to also look at it as the inciting incident that gave me a good life. It was like the worst thing that had ever happened to me or up there in terms of destabilizing, uh, shocking traumatic. I mean, you'd think that plastic surgery wouldn't be so, especially if you look good and you look fine. It's not yeah. like of all the things yeah. in the world you can't compare with, you know, the other kinds of life trauma. But for me, it did 
there was like before the nose job and after the nose job stories. And it really, I realized it was kind of the, the hub of the wheel because it came from deep, deep feelings of wanting to be able to do what I always wanted to do, which was act. And knowing that my looking Jewish or not having a conventional nose or a nose that suited what Hollywood's idea of movie star noses would be and beauty and the culture's incredible, intense, intense uh, voice in all of our heads, especially women, about what we're supposed to look like in order to be considered beautiful enough, Mm -hmm. beautiful enough to be a lead of a movie, beautiful enough to be valuable. There's just so much in the whatever it is that you grew up thinking or learned from life that other people thought, and it became your thinking that there was something unlovable about me. Let's just talk about me. Yeah. There was something that was in the way of me having my heart's desire. And that to me, it could be anything for anyone. Like everyone has something and that it might change throughout life. You know, it might be whatever your thing is or your weight loss. And meanwhile, not everyone gets to know about it, but if it's your nose, you know, it's everyone seems to have an opinion. <laughs> but the, the counterintuitive, obviously, such a defining moment. And and one would, the, the counterintuitive thing is, okay, I could understand that math before you hit it big. Here you, you're coming off of this monster movie that's just career-defining that, if anything, one could say, oh, no, a woman doesn't have to have a perfect nose. And, and that's what made her, is that every woman could relate to her. She was gorgeous and adorable, but... Like all of us, had her a little... Imp- so, obviously, you, you, you have your, your dad, you have three plastic surgeons, say you should do it. No, my, it was my mom. Both my parents had had, you know, rhinoplasties because that was what people did in the 50s in show business. So, that's 40s into the 50s, you know, immigrants wanting to be American, uh, you know, and everybody is wanting to, you know, sh- eschew their you know, Yiddish roots to be pop culture. Yeah. Like my grandfather, famous Jew who would Yiddishize pop songs so that the, you know, people who would come from Ukraine and from the old country came over and so that they could feel American. So there was a lot of information in my history. I was third generation showbiz. My grandfather didn't do his nose. He was super, super identified self-identified as being very Jewish. He was a Jewish comedian and musician right. and Jewish. Uh, right. right. Yeah, but he didn't actually, he wasn't in the Borscht Belt, which is always so weird. But just going back to the, to the question is, one would think that after that, you know, lightning bolt success would have been, even if you had gone into things thinking, oh, this is something you go, oh, no, this is, this is, this is my brand now. This is who I am. So obviously pivotal, life-changing, that you were not filled up that way after that role? The prologue, I explain what happens because I was sure that all I needed was to have a hit like that under my belt. I think it's safe to assume that once you have hit it, once you've made it at that point, that you can finally go, oh, thank God. Thank God I you know, didn't sell out. Thank God I didn't give up. I mean, I didn't ever want one. And I just kept like, I was 
working so hard to love myself as I was. And finally, I got a part. And then it was great. And then people loved it. And then I was like, man, I did it. I got out of here alive. Like, I, you know, I'm talking to my nose like, we made it, man. We made it. I got you, babe. I got you, you know. And then what happens, which you'll read about if you read the prologue, is that I couldn't get another job. Couldn't get another job for over a year. But that's the counterintuitive part because you would think that Hollywood is such a copycat me too sheep industry that they would go, ah, that's the new thing. Get me, get me the Jennifer Grey look. Get me like that. That's what's so counterintuitive about it. That's, that's what just doesn't make any sense. Well, here it is. It, I think it is a really bigger issue about how behind we still are about like the narrow definition of beauty, the narrow definition of what makes somebody a leading lady or valuable or castable, or it's just, that was a part about a Jewish girl who wasn't pretty enough to get the guy who gets the guy. Yeah. Yeah. That's very specific, right? A Jewish girl who's decides that she has to be smart and like people pleaser and help people and do, you know, be devote her life to social justice because she'll never be the pretty girl who gets the guy. So she gets to develop all these other parts of herself. Thank God which is what happens when people don't faint when you walk in the door. You have to figure out, okay, what am I going to do? And so she has this depth. And then, surprise, this thing happens, this miracle. And what happens is it it um, kind of blows up the idea of who gets what, who's lovable, who's beautiful. Yeah. How do we yeah. define beauty? How do we define, like, you know, Johnny Castle would never ever have been interested in baby except for the fact that he got to spend time with her dancing and when they weren't speaking and they were dancing and their bodies had this other language and this other way of connecting which kind of uh it's like went in through the back door of the unconscious and it actually they had access to each other in a different way than you would on the top side world of you know living life as in the more, it's just, it's just a deeper place. And it's very hard for people to get to that deeper place uh, because our culture is so conditioned to thinking that there has to be a certain look and a certain way that you have to be in order to be desirable. And I think that's why so many people responded to it because the idea that transformation is possible and that there is more to us than what meets the eye, right? And that somebody would see it and their seeing it would help us recognize it in ourselves. It's not like they gave it to us. Yeah, I didn't give it to Johnny. He didn't give it to me. But his seeing that in me and me seeing that in him gave us each a chance to be more than what um, meets the eye. Does that make sense? Yes. Speaking of Johnny, you talk in the book about uh, that you guys did not have a great first experience on Red Dawn together. Uh, you, you did a movie together and it was less than less than bombastic chemistry uh, that you kind of just you said it was a little bit oil, oil and water, I think it was. Well, I mean, we were such different people from such different worlds and he was older than I was and I was really young. I mean, I was 24 or something, but that's pretty young, 23, 24, I think. And 
I also hadn't worked a lot and I had done, you know, theater and done little parts, but I was really um, green and nervous and serious and wanting to, you know, nervous about being able to do a good job. And uh, he was, you know, one of the, it was a real boys club and he was with the boys and they were just acting like boys. And, you know, it's just the things that happened made me feel, you know, like, not respected or whatever. And it's so crazy because I look back on it and I'm like, of course, boys are being boys. And I was like, you know, the girl who was so scared that she wasn't going to be able to come up with the performance of blowing myself up with a hand grenade, my big death scene or whatever. I mean, we were just, it wasn't, we had no chemistry, you know, at that point. And you read, you read for the part and you, he, basically kind of did a mea culpa and really kind of just uh, said, I fucked up and uh, uh, talk, talk to us about that. I mean, he was so, I mean, he was so smart, you know, he was so contrite and I believed he meant every, I mean, he was a very genuine guy and he knew that when we, you know, when we did Red Dawn that, he wouldn't be, it would, there would be a little bit of a pushback for me probably just because, you know, I was really disappointed, you know, and we came, we were just had different ways of working and just different styles. And the thing that's so amazing is that he was so clearly when he came in to read and dance with me, I had never seen him as a dancer because I'd only seen him in a red dawn like a soldier of fortune type of movie where we were just blowing up Russians and shooting AK 47s. And I was blowing myself up with a hand grenade. It was just very, uh, it was, it was very the opposite of a dance movie. <laughs> and so then once I realized, I mean, I knew he'd been a ballet dancer. I knew that his wife was a dancer and that they were dancers together. And I knew that he'd been dancing all his life. He'd actually been in a musical with my dad. He was one of the dancers in the chorus of a show my dad had done on Broadway years before when I was still in high school. So I knew him that he had been a serious dancer, but I'd never been in his arms before and I'd never had him dance with me. And when he did, because that was the audition, it was a dance audition without choreography. It was more like just seeing what it would be like. And it was just like the greatest thing ever. You know, the second he had me in his arms, it was just like, oh, God, I guess I'm going to have to make this work because it was so there was nobody even close to what he the kind of um, masculinity and strength and power and confidence that that character would need to have to be able to be believable as a professional dancer who was paid by women like, you know, like a gigolo in a, you know, at the in the Catskills, like a heartthrob and that he, he just was perfect. He was perfect. It was written for a very different kind of guy. Yeah. But then once he came in, there was nobody else. And it was, I knew. Wait, I'm going to answer this right now. Hi, Curtis Schenker. Yeah. I'm doing a podcast right now with a friend of yours, Jennifer Gray. Is there anything you'd like to say to her? All right. I was actually going to ask. I, I was going to actually ask because I did a with with our friend Mike Fox. I did one, and I brought Curtis up, but it got edited out. So he's been upset with me ever since. So I'm glad we got this opportunity. Uh, Jen, is there anything you want to say about the great Curtis Schenker? He's great. There's no other greater. Show. 
except for Carolyn. She said you're great. Other than other than Carolyn, you're great, better than everybody. Except Carolyn's much greater than you. Well, ask her about my skin. What about his skin? What? What, what about? Mean, I'm probably sure, but he wants you to say that he's got great skin now. He's he's. Remember when I saw her last? She complimented. She told me how great my skin was. Oh, you may, you see, this was an important important moment in his life. You told him how great his skin is. You know what? I think because the time before you were covered with like scabs and I was like, oh, it really worked. Whatever that thing you was, you did. Carl, I'll call you later. Goodbye. <laughs> I love that boy. So going back to what we were, we were talking about, um, you, you knew he was the right guy. What I love is the fact that the famous scene of all time, that you were too afraid to like even rehearse. You just like, it was like, boom. And, and like, just... You, like just ha- like that's not supposed to happen that way. You know, it's I, I have a very weird thing that I've noticed in the past is that I'm better at really hard things than I am easy things. There are things that make no sense that I'm capable of doing, and you know, they say it's you know it's not the ass biting ants, it's the charging elephants that'll get you. Yeah, but I feel like I'm better at the charging elephants. You know, like I'm really. I'm really good in a pinch. You know what I mean? Like there's something, because I think that it's not me. There's something where I'm just, when you're really at a loss and you're terrified and you just have no choice but to leap, there's something else that comes in, a power that's not your own. And I feel like I can access that because I'm, I don't know. I just have noticed that I'm really good at the hard things. You seem really good. You seem like somebody who is really, really at peace with themselves. I've noticed that as I get older, I get happier. And as I, I don't know, I feel like I've never been happier in my life than right now. And I think that it's one of the beautiful things about aging is that, you know, everyone, I think it gets a really bad rap in the world. I think that people all think that getting older is bad or something that needs to be, I don't know, fended off. And I just feel the opposite. I feel that you learn, you just have so much life experience. And when you're young, you might look great or your skin will be all tight and whatever. And, you know, you look back at pictures and you know you didn't feel that beautiful then. And you're like, man, how couldn't I not have known how beautiful I was and how, because it you can't experience it when you're young because you're just so lost. You're so lost in fig, trying to figure out there's so much ahead and you haven't done anything. And once you've gone through a lot of life, I just feel like it, it makes you realize that you can get through anything that, you know, that it's just, and the more you get through, the more self-esteem you have and the more you realize how hardy you are. And then you realize, I know what makes me unhappy. And that's easy to just start to eliminate that stuff. You know, I hear you. I don't know. I just feel like there's a lot. I think, I think that aging gets a really bad rap. And I think that it's really like, did you know that there is this thing called the U-curve? And it's a, it's about how they've done, you know, this is actually science-based, that people are happiest when at the beginning of their lives and at the end of their lives. Interesting. Did you know that? I did not know that. That's interesting. I, I would think... That makes sense to me because at the beginning of your life, there's everything ranging from you don't know any better to the, the ignorance is bliss to childhood to less stress. I mean, less responsibility. 
And then at the end, there's, I'm finding it's interesting. I'm not at the end of my life. I'm 64, uh, a very sprite, you know, 64. But, but, I'm feeling, but, I'm, but what I'm feeling now is a little bit of calm in that, which I would think would heighten as you get even older, whereas kind of like, okay, these are the cards I've played and I would have done this over, but it's like you, you, the, the, there's something about not having everything in front of you then on the one hand, you could go, well, that's kind of depressing. On the other hand, is something relaxing and and where you've kind of like, I've run most of the race already or a lot of the race and I'm going to give myself these marks and the rest is going to look like this. But I, I do find that. I do. It's interesting. The thing that's so interesting is I think that when you think there are all these things that you need to make you happy and you've gotten them, if you're one of the lucky ones who's experienced the things you know, the outside things, the material things, you know, having a family, having a car, having a house, being able to support yourself, figuring out your career, that you can have those things and not be happy. And once you realize that, and then you realize, but you can always be happy, but it's not going to be contingent on those things because those things didn't work on their own. It's more about the ability to be in the moment and that little kids are fully in the moment. Yeah. And I think that we're basically, uh, we, we're getting all of this experience that's informing us. And I'm just super, I, I've, I think that one of my best traits is that I'm crazy curious and I just love learning about new things. And I love, like, I, I get excited and interested in a lot of things. And I feel like I just get, there's just joy to be had that is not dependent on other people. Well, it's obviously fame is such a, uh, that's such a weird word, but is such a critical factor in your life and that you're one of the, you're probably about the only science experiment who had this, you talk about this, this rocket ship to fame and then rocket ship to anonymity and all that mm -hmm. came with that. And, and, well, uh, and all of the misunderstanding and all of the feeling completely not seen and the like the betrayal that I experienced of feeling like has no one, everyone I know, I mean, so many people have had plastic surgery. And yet why I'm the only person I know who doesn't want plastic surgery or like plastic surgery and have done almost probably less than I would say the average woman in Hollywood for sure. Like yes. I just, the rest is just like a match, right? You look great. You look great, by the way. Thank you. Is that it's not like to be treated like you are someone that you're not is really uh, not fun. And also if you're treated like that on a global stage for decades and to be known for something that was completely weird and made no sense. And I don't know anyone else who experienced what I, my experience. So it was like being in the twilight zone. So it was a lot of things, but what it really did for me, Donnie, that I feel is the gift of it is that it took away everything that I thought I was going for in an instant. And then I had to really figure out who I was. I had no illusion that I was, uh, I just had no illusion about, like, I couldn't even, like I couldn't even enjoy being famous or successful because as soon as it happened, like within a year, it was literally like ripped away and then I was blamed for it. And it was just so confusing and so what I wanted to do was just like explain to people, don't you understand? This is not, you've got the wrong story. You got the wrong girl. But since I couldn't do that, I had to basically ask myself, 
who I was, to figure out who I really was, what my value was. And I wish, I wish for everyone to have an experience that removes everything from you so that you can really treat it like a new experiment of like a fact-finding mission. Like, what is it that makes me valuable? Because other people's opinion, if you're dependent on that and their opinion of you is, is not only you know, erroneous, but also unkind and ungenerous, then you go like, what? why am I worried about what other people think of me? I don't like that. I'm not, I'm not, it's just like, I just had to wean myself off of being so attached to people liking me or concerned with how people talked about me or thought about me. And I think it was the ultimate freedom of figuring out if I know who I am, then I'm much less dependent on, on controlling the narrative of what other people think of me. Going back a little to the beginning, obviously such an interesting childhood of two, two parents uh, uh, in the business, show business. Your early years, your club-going years in New York City, your relationships with Matthew Broderick and, and Johnny Depp, your friendship with Madonna. Were you at all concerned about spilling the beans on people in your life? Are you Obviously, that's something that you go through here. You go, I, I'm going to either do this or not. And now here are these people that you share these intimacies with, and now you're going to have to kind of, it was a reflection point for you, but did you ever kind of say, ah, I don't, I don't know, if, or how'd you kind of come to terms with that? I, I would have to say, aside from not knowing how to write a real sentence, that was the hardest part of the book for me. Yeah. Um, because, because I really, I have a very, very, I'm very, it's still very much a part of me to be, not worried about what strangers think of me so much, but the people who I've cared about and who I've known intimately and who I've, you know, spent years of my life with, I would just, I don't wish ill on anybody. And at the same time, if I could, I believe me, I took out every single story about anyone that wasn't right. absolutely transformative. I mean, some are for the positive, some are for the negative, some are both. Yeah. Usually it's both, yeah. right? Yeah. But when, when, um, when things happened, if I could have removed any of the things about anyone in the public eye, I mean, you might think that I wouldn't have because it wouldn't sell as well or it would not be as salacious. But the truth is, if I could have told the story with everyone with um, pseudonyms, I would have. Because it's very, to me, it was the most threatening and um, confounding part of it for me because I wish everyone, I don't wish harm on anyone. And at the same time, as Anne Lamott said, if they wanted me to write better of them, they should have behaved better. You talk about your, your core, your relationship or the chemistry with Johnny Depp bonfire. Uh, how'd you feel watching Johnny go through what he went through over the last, last few months? Honestly, I, I don't recognize the guy. Really? You know, I mean, I recognize him a little. I see him in there a little bit if I squint. He was a very different person. He was really, really young and really sweet. And, uh, and I, I, I look at him, I don't feel like it's the same person as I was with. We're talking about a really long time ago. Yeah. And I just, I, I see, I think it's just so sad 
to see what happens in the press with people and the amount of hunger people have, the the cannibalism, the, just the way they want to you know, build people up and take them down and eating their young and eating their middle-aged. I mean, just the amount of attention that two people who are clearly suffering would be given that much screen time and, you know, water cooler time or whatever it is, why it's so fascinating to people. um, I don't know. I don't know because I, I didn't watch any of it. And I just... I just feel like life is hard. Like, do we really need to like torture each other? Yeah. It feels like, you know, we're all doing our best. We're all trying our best. And I believe that each of them are trying their best. That That's their best. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You, it, what do you think about that? I, I, what I think is really sobering. I remember when the trial first hurt, when it first was breaking, there were more Google searches for Johnny Depp and, uh, than they were for the January 6th committee. I think it was the January, something huge was breaking that day. And like, I mean, that just shows where our, where our public interest is. This what do you is attribute it. that to? I, I think that number one, it's a combination, not number one, it's a combination of a few things. I think it's simple, old, high school. We love watching the cheerleader and the, and the captain of the football team and seeing what's going on with them. And, and, we love watching them rise. We love even more watching them fall because it makes us not feel so bad about our own lives. So when you see people that seem to have it all going through things like that, not they don't look at it the way you look at it, I think most people. Um, and I think we are a culture that now uh, worships the church of celebrity uh, and to the point where we now live in a world where what's so insane, how old is your daughter now? Almost 21. You didn't, you, you kind of missed the, you know, right now I have a 15 year old. What a brutal way it is to live through life right now. And this, this seems to be this endless bottomless pit search for outside affirmation, the very thing that you're talking about. It's such a theme for you. Exactly right. And I will say that it's literally like, what is the expression? Pissing in the wind or like shouting well or whatever, like whatever the old people say. Okay. That's what I'm saying. It's there is this, it is, I could tell my daughter or her, you know, peers till I'm blue in the face, all of the wisdom that I have, it doesn't even make a dent because the culture is so, they're so immersed in a world of the virtual world and the world of, um, it's basically creating addiction to um, attention. attention. And it's just so crazy because even if you're getting tons of attention, then you become, that becomes the norm. And then when it becomes less for whatever reason, it feels like a loss. Yeah. Yes. And so then you, you're really creating a dopamine addiction to attention. And I think the greatest thing is to learn how to be alone and not lonely, how to comfort yourself, how to self-regulate, how to be able to be like to be less porous and to be less available to the elements because the elements out there are not your friends. You know what yeah. I mean? You talk about being lonely or alone or not being lonely alone. Uh, you went through, you've gone through a big life transition. You, you, you split from your husband of, of almost 20 years. Uh, how are you doing on your own these days? I'm just happy. You know, I was really, I was married for 20 years I got married late in life. I think that I was, I never knew if I wanted to be married. I always knew I wanted kids. 
And I never really imagined, I write about that in one of my chapters, that it was just, I never had like the dream of the wedding. And so I think that there was some part of me that was always, I think that because my mom gave up her career and my dad had the career, I think that it was very clear that that was the better choice. It like looked like he had like the fun life. And it seemed that my mom was sad for most of my life, having really given up her dream of, of being an actress and to have a career of her own. And to have two actors in a family is really tough because who will stay home and who is the person putting the kid to bed? And uh, I guess there are couples who've done it. It's not that common that it's successful. And I was so happy to give up my career by the time I met Clark because I was 41 when I realized I was pregnant. And then we thought maybe we should get married. And I was like, I was so beat up by the business. And so I'd had success and lost success and um, just had really, I always just desperate to have a child. And then I got to have this beautiful baby and it just was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And because he was working and he worked all of a sudden, his career got really good at that time, which was so beautiful. It was like, they say every baby brings a basket. Right. And his career just take off. And I thought he was going to be a writer when I met him because I always knew he had been an actor, but it looked like he was a writer. And then all of a sudden he got all this acting work. And I was like, wait, what is going on here? And I was like, thank God. And then he just took care of us. And I was able to stay home with our kid. And I was so grateful that I got to be the person to put her to bed every night. Yeah. And that I never, I never wanted to leave. I didn't want to go on location. I didn't want, and I wasn't getting offered great things, by the way. It wasn't like I was being offered the greatest things in the world. And I was just saying, no, I just want to put my baby to sleep. But I was fortunate that I wasn't getting great offers because I really loved being a stay-at-home mom. So that was great. I love the reference to your daughter in the book when you talk about when you were doing Cotton Club and right at the beginning, Francis Ford Coppola says, well, you're going to be naked. And what you would say to your daughter today if some if she was in that in that position, I think it was to kill everybody in the room. And and how different is it for young actors? I mean, I'm just just curious your perspective because we're in so, you you've talked about this obviously the the irony of in so many ways we're going backwards. How obviously the, the one of the centerpieces of of uh, Dirty Dancing was the quote unquote illegal abortion. Here we are, all these years later, back back there. Uh, how how are you feeling about things? I, it's to me, I, I feel like I almost can't switch, switch gears that fast about it because it's such a, it's like one of the most serious things that I could talk about. So I'm not really in that head at this moment. Okay. Like I'm serious with you, yeah, but I just right, right. feel I like gotcha. yeah. I don't want to go my head in that zone okay. because I really feel that, I mean, the thing is, is that let me try to give you a nice clean piece about this. So when we shot Dirty Dancing, it was 1987, and it was taking place in 1963. And it was right before Kennedy was assassinated. It was like the innocence of America. And it was before Roe v. Wade. And so what the, the inciting incident in Dirty Dancing is that Penny, 
Johnny Castle's dance partner gets knocked up and needs to get an abortion and abortion's illegal. So I have to borrow money from my dad and lie to my dad. And because I believe this is what's right. And I need to take care of these people who are underserved because they were in this situation. It was the middle-class Jews who were the power up in this, in the Mm -hmm. Catskills, Mm -hmm. because, you know, they weren't allowed to be part, you know, Jews weren't invited. They were basically not allowed to join any of the country clubs. So that's why they created the Catskills and all of those resorts because there was no place for them. So they found, they made a place for themselves. So it was this interesting flipping the, um, the idea of the haves and the have nots, right? So the Jews in this case had, and that their, the staff were the um, people who were not as educated, came from, you know, wrong side of the tracks, little uh, lower income. And so it was a really interesting upstairs, downstairs. And she decides that because she knows that her dad's a doctor and that they would have access to um, a le- um, an abortion, even though it was illegal, that they would be okay. So what happens is it's really the inciting incident that makes the movie happen around this abortion, which is illegal. And therefore you'd need to be someone who had the money to pay a doctor to perform an illegal abortion because otherwise you'd either have, she would have had to have the kid Mm -hmm. unwanted pregnancy, or she would have died. And in this case, even though it was paid for by her dad's money, she is hemorrhaging. And here's this romantic comedy. And I can't think of, you know, any other movie that is a romantic feel-good comedy, which is, you know, about falling in love and first love and loss of innocence. And then you have this botched abortion. And all of that is the underpinnings of this love story, right? Mm -hmm. And there are, I just think it's it's a feminist movie. And it was never thought of as such, but it really is because Baby is like one of the early feminists yes. in cinema. Oh, I always saw it as a tremendously feminist movie. I mean, to to that to your point, I mean, it's just, the, and I think that's one of the reasons that women just took to it so much. It was this 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 empowering young woman that was not going to, you know, play the role her sister played and was not going to be defined by a guy and was not. I mean, I I I, I think it's a tr- clearly feminist movie. And she also has to really, she's at a moment where she has to individuate from her dad because her dad, you know, her dad and she are like the same. They're kind of like, she's grown up to become him. And then she has to lie to him and have this like other life that's a secret, which is part of what happens developmentally is that kids have to have their own life and separate from the parents being their, you know, clone. And so there's so much about it, about you can love your parents and respect your parents and still disappoint them and still do it because you need to do it because that is the natural course. Well, I appreciate your time. You are, I I mean, the book, everybody's got to read the book is out of the corner of memoir. Um, It is Jennifer Gray, everything you always wanted to know. And then some, you are a delightful, engaging, uh, special woman. Really appreciate your time. We've always liked each other and we see each other as, I don't know, I always have, like, whenever I see you, I always just feel like, oh, okay, that now I'm good. I know he's here. 
Hope you enjoyed my interview with Jennifer Gray. She's fantastic. I think she's great. I kind of have a crush on her over here. Just saying, remember to write, review, subscribe, anywhere you get podcasts, Apple, Spotify, anyplace else. We really appreciate you listening, and we'll see you next week on Our Breath.